Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, have you ever seen or read uh, Peter Benchley's The Deep? I have not, but I know of it. Yeah, the movie had, I think, Nick Nolte in it. Yes. Uh, in Speedos or something. But, in in uh, his uh, better days. Yeah, in his better days, mm-hmm. not the, the later days. But, uh, but as, as I recall, the, the plot is basically um, everyone gets excited because there's like a World War II vessel mm-hmm. uh, shipwreck. All right, down there on the seafloor, yeah. and it's just loaded with morphine. So people are like, hey, let's go down and get that morphine and then sell it and we'll be rich. Um, or maybe they're just really into morphine. I don't know. But uh, but then the thing is, underneath that shipwreck, there's a second shipwreck. It's like an old like Spanish galleon filled with gold. Oh, of course. And gold then, coins. But then there's more. Under that, there's a third shipwreck. Mm-hmm. And that is an old Aztec vessel, mm-hmm. and it's filled with silver mm-hmm. and uh, and like and like other treasures. And then underneath that, there's a fourth uh, wreck, and this one's actually an alien spaceship that uh, Nick Nolte is able to dive down to, and there right. he discovers uh, his long lost father, who is Cthulhu. Right. So spoilers abound there. And then but... the Kraken shows up. <laughs> and then the Kraken shows up, but the Nautilus comes to the rescue. Yeah. 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 This is not always the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you guys haven't figured out what we're talking about today, we are talking about the ocean and all the detritus that that lives in there. Yeah, because uh, that we, know, dump. we hear a fair amount about sunken treasure ships every now and then. It's like it's great, uh, you know, boy's life, uh, pirate adventure fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is there is we have dropped a lot of stuff onto the ocean floor. Yeah. And and it's not all just like, a, you know, the, you also see stuff about like, oh, a ship, a ship sinks and it becomes a, a natural environment for fish. It becomes a, a new coral reef or something. And you see situations where people take these stripped vessels out and sink them mm-hmm. so that various uh, forms of sea life can make it home. Right. But uh, in reality, you have a whole lot of ships that have gone down with oil ab- aboard, with unexploded ordnance aboard, mm-hmm. uh, well, with, and with human lives aboard uh, as well. Uh, not that that's as much of a... An environmental factor at all, right? Uh, but, but some some areas are, are essentially under, underwater graveyards, right? Yeah. yeah. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about these sunken dangers and and what they what they mean for the environment. Yeah, and not only that, um, you know how they uh, how they affect the oceans, which we have like even like the most minutest understanding about right now. Right. And we'll talk more about that later. But um, this really is something that's very important to our existence. Yeah. So. Let's talk about those tankers. Yeah. Those so stinking tankers. A lot of this originates from the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, it, it's easy for those of us who, who grew up years and years, decades after uh, the Second World War to forget that this was a truly global uh, scenario. Mm-hmm. This was a major deal. Like, like nations around the world became immersed in total warfare. Right. Instinct my battleship was just not the cry of a board game. It right, was, right. It in was, fact, happening. World War II was the single uh, largest, uh, saw the single largest loss of shipping in a relatively uh, short period of time that the world has ever witnessed. Mm-hmm. To, to put some numbers on that, I have some stats here that come from Sea Australia, which mm-hmm. is an organization that uh, has concerned itself with the fate of these various vessels and their uh, potential impact on the environment. They said 7,800 sunken World War II vessels worldwide, mm-hmm. including 860 oil tankers, and they've been sitting there 
uh, in many cases, you know, on the bottom of the, the seafloor for 60 years uh, right. or more, 70, I guess now we're looking at um, just corroding. Asia Pacific region alone, mm-hmm. 13 million tons of sunken vessels in the Pacific, including 330 tankers and oilers. And then Atlantic, Mediterranean and Indian Ocean, somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,950 vessels, over a thousand tons of ship and 529 of those are thought to be oil tankers. Because you have you have ships sinking each other, you have uh, submarines, right. you have you have stuff just going down due to weather or other factors, mm-hmm. and uh, the state that these uh, vessels go down in it, it it varies, you know, because in some cases they're sustaining damage before they go down. Right. Stuff is blowing up before they go down, uh, so they're they're not exactly tightly wrapped containers. In some cases, the oil is burning off uh, in the explosion. Or yeah. most of it is. In other cases, a vessel is hit in such a way that most of the oil may be intact. And it just goes down there and, uh, and it's just uh, sitting mm-hmm. until that container that it's in, that, that metal container, finally deteriorates enough right. for it to leak out into the surrounding environment. Well, of note uh, recently is the SS Montebello, which was sunk by a Japanese submarine 70 years ago off the coast of central California. Three million gallons of oil were loaded onto the vessel before it departed on December 23, 1941, and it now sits 900 feet below in frigid ocean water. It looks like, uh, based on uh, on what has been released from the survey, it yeah. looks like there's there's no oil down there. So, Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, it looks like there was some concern because this was definitely one of those cases where they they thought that uh, like the portion of the ship that was hit uh-huh, the whole uh, the, was uh, was not the portion with the oil so they okay. thought that the oil could be intact but it looks like the oil is gone now so thank you Robert lamb yeah but but that's just one uh, case uh, out of many and you have to uh, another th- factor to remember here is that we don't have a countdown for how long any of these vessels have because because yeah. on top of their conditions varying depending on the model of the ship and the conditions that it sank under, uh, you have environmental concerns as well. Yeah, and I mean... The thing is, too, is that this is, uh, as you as you noted, there are 860 sunken oil tankers. And yeah. so this is not new news to anybody. And, in fact, um, there was another ship that sank in 1953 near San Francisco called the SS Jacob Luckenbach. And it slowly leaked some of the 475,000 gallons of oil that the freighter was carrying. Um, and it fouled that coast for decades. So, you know, this is, again, not new news. But mm-hmm. I think that it's uh, one of those things that people are starting to back up and realized to the extent to which um, it could be damaging, yeah, particularly after all these years. Eventually, any shipwreck, I mean, is going to deteriorate to the to the, to the the state where stuff's going to leak out right. if there's something in there to leak. Uh, and then also you have cases where if something sinks in a uh, in, into deep enough water, you're going to have pressure that's going to crunch the hole down even more. Yeah. So, yeah. so a number of people are keeping, trying to keep tabs mm-hmm. on, um, on, on some of these tankers and, uh, and try and evaluate uh, what kind of a threat they pose. Uh, and in some cases, something can be done about it. In 2003, the U.S. Navy successfully extracted fuel from a sunken World War II tanker off uh, the coast of Micronesia. Mm-hmm. And they were actually able to recoup some of the costs by reselling the salvaged oil. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, there are some cases where... We can do something about it, but what do you do about the radioactive waste dumping, right? Yes, radioactive shipwrecks, or in many cases, submarine uh, mm-hmm. wrecks. There have been several of, the, uh, of these of note, uh, cases where a nuclear submarine or a submarine with you know with nuclear capabilities has uh, sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Right. Uh, 1963, USS Thrasher um, off the coast of New England 
1968, USS Scorpion, lost in the mid-Atlantic. And then you've seen several different Soviet subs, uh, 1970, uh, November-class sub off the coast of Spain, 86, off the coast of Bermuda, 89, um, off the coast of Norway, and then in 2000, the Kursk. Again, uh, off the uh, coast of Norway. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the problem of Russia dumping radioactive waste into the Arctic Sea. Um, while there have been some contested facts, because, of course, you've got, um, you know, Russia saying, no, this is not the case. And then you have other independent groups that mm-hmm. have uh, actually confirmed some of the data. What we do know for sure is that in the 1950s, the effluent from the nuclear weapons factory near Chelyabinsk was dumped into the River Tekcha. And it ended up in the Arctic Ocean. And then between 1964 and 1986, some 7,000 tons of solid radioactive waste and 1,600 cubic meters of liquid waste was pitched into the Kara and Barents Sea from the base in Murmansk, which served the Soviet fleet um, of nuclear-powered naval and merchant ships. So... And you have also uh, nuclear reactors uh, from at least 18 nuclear... uh, Excuse me, you've got 18 nuclear reactor submarines and icebreakers, which were dumped into the Barents Sea and an entire nuclear sub, which was sunk deliberately after an accident in May 1968. So just <laughs> this is a very sort of scary area to, to be in, obviously. And a lot of its neighbors are not very happy about it. Norway uh, fishing industry, right. obviously, is like, hey, I think could we get a little bit more information? But this is what we know now. Uh, but some, some of this has been leaking out. Yeah, no pun intended. Right. But another thing that's interesting about both the uh, radioactive and the the oil based uh, uh, threats here are that they uh, they they kind of feel like they're like the ghosts of a previous age mm-hmm. that have come back to haunt us. In the case of the World War II vessels, they're like the remnants of a time when so many of the nations of the earth were were immersed in a, in global warfare. Right. And certainly we we haven't gotten to the point where we have completely put aside the idea of uh, of nuclear weapons, uh, but. Uh, it's worth noting that the Scorpion, uh, again, uh, this was 68, it sunk under 10,000 feet of water, about 400 miles uh, southwest of mm-hmm. Azarez, and uh, it had two Mark 45 anti-submarine uh, torpedoes. Those are nuclear torpedoes that were designed by the United States to use against high-speed, deep-diving enemy submarines. Which, I mean, for those of you who, who keep up with the history of, uh, of nuclear ar- armaments, uh, that may make more sense to you. But for, for me, I ha- somehow did not realize that, I mean, I knew that, uh, you know, submarines have traditionally uh, been given the role of, of, of becoming a, a mobile platform from mm-hmm. which to launch uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and, uh, and deliver a nuclear payload from anywhere around the world virtually. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you could have one submarine using a nuclear weapon against another submarine in the same ocean as itself just completely blows my mind uh i mean it's just that that we were that we've been that stupid in 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 recent memory you know well i think too i mean some of this is that um you know at the time that this was being enacted that we were not really uh thinking about the future right we weren't thinking right. 70 years from now what's going to happen to this um and i don't think that we had the understanding that we do now of the oceans or at least the tiny understanding of yeah. of of what uh, how important ocean life is to us, right? And with the with the with the tankers and all the various vessels that were lost in the Second World War, I mean, a lot of that was 
the war is going on. We got to get stuff from point A to point B to feed some troops. We got to get get oil from point A to point B to uh, to fuel these uh, these aircraft. These right, tanks. right. And not only is the uh, you know the oceans, the seas, not only are these uh, li- you know seemingly limitless resources, mm-hmm. great dumping grounds too, right? Uh, another uh, case that's worth mentioning is the 1958 Tybee Island mid-air collision. Oh yeah. Uh, this and of course Tybee Island is off the coast of uh, our uh, Savannah, home state of Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, real pretty out there, coastal uh, region near Brunswick, Georgia, which I, I always remember because uh, I, a newspaper editor I used to work with uh, came from there. And journalism jobs, they would always have a listing for Brunswick. Like mm-hmm. they were constantly needing new uh, editorial staff. Yeah. And they always had a real um, fancy write up where they were like, come uh, work by the beach. And it made it sound really awesome. But uh-huh. of course, they were always looking for somebody. So you're like, oh, man, I bet it really sucks there. Well, maybe that or, or they just really needed a lot of coverage for their Brunswick chili cook-offs. That's true. Brunswick yeah. stew, right? Yeah. But uh, but Tybee Island, though, the yeah, 58 um, Air Force B-47 Stratojet uh, was on a simulated combat mission when it collided with an F-86 Sabre. Uh, near Savannah, Georgia, and uh, the B-47 was carrying one Mark 15 hydrogen bomb without its core at the time of the accident. So this nuclear payload is lost mm-hmm. and has never been found. Like at one point, they they thought they were they they sort of had the an idea of where it was based on right. some radioactive uh, signatures, but then they just found that found out that the the radioactive signature wasn't uh, anything substantial, and they're like, well, that's not it. We don't know where it is. So it could be lying at the bottom of the sea or not. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, someone's garage. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, if you put it like that, it's maybe not. I mean, it's down there somewhere. But yeah, but still, you know, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you want to lose track of. It could be in someone's garage. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if someone someone were to say, I know I have a musket around the house here, but I really don't remember where I put it. Or, you know, it's like, where did I put that hand grenade? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like any sort of plot uh, on TV or, you know, in the movies where you've got the gun, the smoking gun. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's essentially what that is. So, yeah. A uh, really giant, huge gun. Let's talk about this ocean and why it is such a mystery to us and why it's so important to us. Well, I mean, for starters, it's most of the planet. Yes. Yeah. 70%. Yeah. And uh, not only that, 95%, it is estimated, has is unmapped, which oh. is pretty important. Uh, there is actually more known about the moon's surface than the ocean depths. So said aquatic filmmaker Fabien Costeau. Costeau. Uh, of course, grand- grandson of ocean diving pioneer Jacques Cousteau. And, um. He named his son Fabian? Or f- well, you could say Fabian. Fabian, okay. I prefer Fabian. Fabian. I don't know. If you, if there's a Fabian out there, uh, let us know how <laughs> you prefer your name to be <laughs> pronounced. Um, but, uh, it's thought that there are some points in where the ocean is more than 30,000 feet deep, okay? And, you know, they use this analogy that 12 men have stepped foot on the moon, but only two people have been to the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest part of the ocean at roughly seven miles deep. And if you were to take like ship-based sonar and other measurements and you were to map such a small percentage of the ocean floor, it would take a single ship 200 years or 10 ships 20 years to measure all the ocean floor depths. Uh, and this is according to the U.S. Navy. So I bring that up only because... Um, you know, we, we really don't understand what is, uh, beneath the surface of the water. Right. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, there are things like undersea waterfalls that we've recently discovered, um, lakes, pools. Yeah. The brine pools are particularly interesting. Uh, yeah. Where it, it basically, it, it looks, you have this thick layer of, of, of salty water mm-hmm. that's just setting down there in the bottom. 
and uh, and it looks like a set like it really throws your perception off because right. it looks like a lake on the on the on the floor of the ocean mm-hmm. you know, like the, the, there's this like you know color and, and and gleaming difference right so people are like I don't, I don't understand how deep is that what is that what's underneath that right. um so there's and then of course extremophiles which we've learned about hydrothermal vents there are all sorts of really incredible things that we have found and there's this great marine biologist uh, named Sylvia Earle, who is, you know, one of the two people to have dived down to the depth of 1,250 feet more than 50 years ago. And she says that it's absolutely scandalous that we've yet to dive past the depths of the ocean's skin, because that's what she's calling it. That's her analogy. And she says that there's, in fact, one little blue-green bacterium that's responsible for the oxygen in one of every five breaths you take. So 20% of the oxygen. Which is wow. amazing. And she's saying this is the kind of information that we just didn't know, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, how important the ocean's ecosystem is to our or, existence. Or uh, 60 or 70 years ago when we were sinking ship after ship into exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. No end in sight. Yeah. And she was on the panel at the World Science Festival in 2010. And uh, there they talked about coral, too, being the longest living organism um, at 4,000 years old and also one of the slowest growing organisms, which I think we all know. Um, but they're basically saying that the trawlers are scraping the bottom of the ocean and clear cutting the coral which we know now is a cornerstone of the ocean's ecosystem. So uh, now consider that that statistic about how much of our oxygen is derived from the ocean and consider you know how important coral is to sea life and how we are clear-cutting it. And it, it's very interesting. And they make the point in the panel, um, if you were to do the same thing to our sky, the same sort of trawling through the air, you know, can you imagine the sort of wreckage that you would incur? I mean, you would scoop up in your net, you know, some birds, trees, people, cars. Yeah. Uh, you would be clear cutting a lot of, of, of life in that way. So when you when they put it in that perspective, you can really kind of see how important it is that we we think differently about the ocean and the way we approach it. All right. So there you go. Sunken dangers. Yeah. Think about that next time you're uh, you're surfing <laughs> or out in the ocean just enjoying the uh, beautiful weather and the scenery. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, uh, robot, why don't you bring us some listener mail, and we'll get to that portion of the episode. Let's see what we have here. All right, we heard from a listener by the name of Corey. Uh, Corey writes in, and, and Corey's email was uh, was rather lengthy, so uh, we're, we're kind of skipping around in there. Yeah, very interesting, but a bit too long for right. reading all of it. Uh, and this comes off of, we did the, the episode about martyrs, in which we were talking about... Um, about pain, mm-hmm. and, uh, relationship with pain, and uh, we didn't really go much into the idea. Uh, I think we just briefly mentioned, oh yeah, there are people that are straight edge. I wonder how that factors right. uh, into it. Uh, straight edge uh, individuals, of course, they they don't take drugs or alcohol, and they they kind of have a make it part of their um, their lifestyle choice that they're going to uh, avoid these uh, temptations. Right, even if uh, you know, obviously, something that, that stops short of death. Right, right. <laughs> they're going to try to avoid any sort of medication. Right. Drugs. And so I was curious. I figured, hey, we probably have some straight-edge listeners out there. I mean, just based on our demographic and our number of listeners, it, it stood to reason that they were there listening. And they were, because uh, uh, Corey writes in, says, uh, Hello, Robert and Julie. First off, love you guys. Keep doing what uh, it is you do so well. Now, in regard to your question about a correlation between being straight-edge and pain tolerance, I can't speak uh, to any case studies or anything, but my, in my personal experience, being straight-edge might imply a greater pain tolerance. Um, they, and they, uh, Corey points out that the, they say, uh, for the majority of my life, uh, I was very strictly a straight edge. Uh, 
when I was three, I suffered a serious um, concussion that fractured my skull and left me unconscious for the better part of two days. In the aftermath of this injury, I suffered headaches for close to a decade and have more than my fair share of them today. Uh, I have had several broken uh, bones, frostbite, real Minnesota frostbite where your flesh turns black and dies, Uh. fractures, uh, wildly painful cysts, and migraines to name a few of my great epics in pain tolerance. It seems to me people go to a great deal of effort to avoid pain, but in reality pain has little to no consequence. It is not like emotional trauma that can haunt you for decades and decades. Pain hits, it hurts, and it's uh, forgotten almost as fast as it comes. In fact, it's uh, really hard to relive physical pain. Pain, so why do people try to uh, try so hard to avoid it or even fear it so much? Also, I have a close friend uh, whom is who is 100% straight edge. Uh, this guy has a pain tolerance. We go rock climbing together, and I'm frequently amazed at how long he can hold very, very painful holds. I have seen him support his entire weight on a finger jam, which is essentially jamming your fingers into a crack in the rock and getting them to stick. Some finger jams are not that big a deal, but this particular finger jam was in a place where the rocks were very sharp and not well suited to finger jamming. It's the sort of uh, finger jam that rips the skin and uh, leaves uh, little indented cuts where the rock digs in. And this guy practically did a one-hand pull-up with just the support of that finger jam. He is crazy tough, trust me. In conclusion, I wonder if having a low pain tolerance may actually be a contributing factor in the body chemistry that leads to addiction, or vice versa. Maybe the body chemistry that supports high pain tolerance has an effect which reduces the the draw to substances that alter physiological states. Because I just prefer sober Corey to altered Corey for no other fact than I can't imagine a me that's better than I already am. What do you guys think? Well, that's a very positive way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, I like that actually. Of me than I already am. Yeah, I hadn't. I'd never thought about that in terms of. Of alcohol or drug use or anything like that, yeah. or altering yourself even with, say, caffeine, right? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. He makes an interesting point. I was just thinking about, uh, I mean, I had a drug-free, epidural-free birth, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to say that it was, you know, a cakewalk or anything, but it's not something that, uh, it's not a pain that haunts me. Um, of course, I have, you know, positive emotions about it because it was the birth of my daughter, so I haven't attached it to any sort of uh, negative consequences, but... You know, it's not something I, I try to relive, or uh, and it was momentary and, and gone. So yeah. it's it's interesting. Well, I've I've been fortunate to not have too many uh, pain-based encounters, uh, but I find that like the, the few things that I, I have uh, suffered, like you know, like uh, you know, cutting myself while chopping vegetables and and that paper sort cuts. of thing. Paper cuts. Well, <laughs> paper cuts to a much lesser extent. But but the, the more the, the thing that makes me wince when I think about them is thinking about like, whoa, I was kind of careless when I was cutting up that potato. Mm-hmm. That's why I cut myself. Imagine had I had the cut been deeper. Imagine if I had hit you know my wrist or something yeah. instead of uh, my palm. So it tends to be uh, be that kind of thing for me. Well, also chronic pain is really debilitating for people too, and mm-hmm. that that enters into a different territory where yeah. you have this sort of feedback loop with your body, which probably would be really interesting territory for us to get into at I some point we, with the we, podcast. We did do one on that, didn't we? We did, but what, we haven't really talked about the feedback loop and um, and sort of you know when you have long term pain mm-hmm. um, and how you can actually. Some doctors say you can reroute that. You huh. can you can stop that feedback loop. Okay. Well, so, yeah, I, I, I know I know we touched on it before, but yeah, maybe we should do a more in-depth uh, look at it in yeah. a future episode. In any case, thank you, Corey. That was yeah, yeah. Interesting. You know, that's exactly the kind of feedback I was looking for. Just you know, to see what uh, people that have this particular um, view on life and pain, or, or specifically on um, on uh, drugs and alcohol, what their take on pain is. So, so thanks for writing it. And if you would like to share something with us, uh, how can you go about it? Well. 
Uh, there's this thing called Facebook, and we are on Facebook mm-hmm. as Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can do a little search there for us on that particular website, uh, which I hear is really taking hold of some people. Um, and then there's this other thing called Twitter, and uh, we are Blow the Mind on the Twitter. Oh, that thing will yeah. never work. Well, we'll see. Twitter? I'm going to keep updating it just in case. And, hey, you can always send us uh, uh, some of your thoughts uh, via email. Uh, for instance, you could send us the weirdest thing that you've ever heard of that was sunken at the bottom of a lake or an ocean. It'd be kind of interesting to find out. Um, any weirdness that you've come upon. And you can do this by emailing us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.